Welcome to another all-too-timely episode of Zero Hour. Today, we're talking to a prominent British cleric, conservative political commentator, and writer. That's a triple threat. Stay tuned as we discuss his thought-provoking political views and explore his recent transition to the Free Church of England, which has been capturing headlines. You will not want to miss this deep dive into the world of Calvin Robinson. Deacon Calvin Robinson is an Anglican minister currently serving as deacon in charge of Christchurch Harlesden in the UK. He's a prominent commentator known for his vocal opposition to the Church of England and his support for conservative values. Who doesn't like that? He's been a contributor to several major publications with previous shows on talk radio and GB News. Welcome, Calvin. Thank you very much. What a nice introduction. Okay. I mean, you even played video games back in the day. You, <laughs> you check a lot of boxes for the show. Uh, you're, I think you're the third uh, British gentleman to appear on this show. Nice. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's really important for Americans to understand not just what's happening to the U.S., but what's yeah, happening to, yeah. to the U.K., to Europe, to the West. Yeah. Uh, things are looking a little bit shaky right now uh, in the West. Do you it agree? Seems, yeah, it seems to go both ways like you guys feed us terrible ideas we feed you terrible ideas and we take them all on board yeah well how do you how do you break the cycle <sighs> go back to the root okay what's the root christianity all right tell the me the west more. was built on christendom we've stripped those values away and assumed we can have some kind of neutrality we can have all ideas being equal or cultures being equal or religions being equal and just have a politically neutral space and that's not possible well, Nature I suppose it's, uh, it's, it's still, um, it's still a, a predictable answer from a deacon that Christianity <laughs> is what we need. Uh, yeah. Let's dig in, though, a little bit because, sure. I mean, you know this as well as anyone, uh, just what counts as Christianity these days is really kind of up in the air. So, um, I mean, take the word values. Like, right, right. like, you don't want neutrality, then you got Christianity over here, yeah. and then you got kind of this mush ground in the middle yeah. where a lot of talk about values, a lot of talk about norms and core commitments and yeah. principles. How do you get a handle on that stuff? Well, we can't make up our values. We have to get them from a, an absolute position. So I would say objective truth comes from the Bible, comes from Jesus Christ. But if, even if you don't believe that, you have to believe in a objective truth. Otherwise, you're grasping at anything. So when we talk about values, right now we're talking about diversity, inclusion, and equality. We're talking about tolerance. But what do these things truly mean? The people who are preaching about diversity don't want diversity of thought and opinion. They want superficial diversity of skin color and immutable characteristics. The people who are talking about inclusivity don't want to include people that have different opinions to themselves. And the people who talk about equality don't truly understand what it means to be equal. We're equal in the eyes of God in terms of dignity and worth, but we're different in every other way. Even men and women are different from each other. And in this modern world, we all have to be the same. Women have to be men. Men have to be women. It doesn't work. This homogenous fudge of nothingness means that we're all miserable. Homogenous fudge of nothingness. It fits on a bumper sticker, I'm pretty sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, a lot, of, a, lot, yeah, a lot of critics of wokeness or whatever you want to call it, um, they like to characterize what's going on as oh, this is craziness, it's insanity, people have really lost their minds. Mm. I think there's more of a method to the madness than that. Do you think this is like a new religion in the making? It is. It's a cult. Um, you can call it neo-Marxism, call it communism, call it socialism, call it liberalism, call it progressivism, whatever name you want to give it, it doesn't matter. It's a collection of ideas that are all united. So we can look at critical race theory, 
queer theory, gender theory, any of these progressive ideologies, but they're all the same. For example, take Black Lives Matter, supposed to be a civil rights movement for race, right? Their manifesto talks about smashing heteronormativity, destroying the patriarchy. Like, what does a race civil rights movement have to do with sexuality or gender? Nothing, because they're all rooted in the same cause, which I would suggest is the enemy trying to attack what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. Well, so that all by itself is, is now quite controversial to say that, that, that this basket of uh, 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 intersectional grievances or claims or um, different articulations of a certain kind of, of pride, of, mm. of self-aggrandizement, um, is in fact satanic. I mean, I, yes. you know, I see guys like, uh, like, uh, like, like Dugan out there in Russia just openly saying the West is now satanic and that's why yeah. we need to, you know, and it would be a shame, I think. I think it would be, you know, with geopolitical um, implications uh, if we just let those guys have that argument if if the only ones out there who are making the argument that uh that satanic power in the world is really a problem for us are the guys on the other side of the world we have a problem don't we absolutely and it is satanic it is demonic it is on one hand we have wokeness trying to take over this this gap that we talked about this void of values that christianity has been removed from wokeness is trying to take over on one hand and we've got islam trying to take over on the other hand so we have two competing set of values that are very very different some people seem to think they can unite but it's impossible and what we truly should be aiming for is christianity well, okay, so let's talk about Islam for yeah, a minute. Okay. Uh, you know, we've uh, you, right, you look at yeah, I know you look at Christianity <laughs> in the West, and it's a history of of division. It's just just a splinter group after splinter group. Yeah. Um, some of them trying to sort of come back and 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 get a little bit closer to what once was, but others just zooming off into a yeah, I think a really a, a post Christian. Well, it's been taken direction. over by liberalism. Yeah, that's right. Um, <clears throat> and and meanwhile, what's going on in Europe is Islam is just on the rise in almost yeah. every every European country at this yeah. point. How many Christians do you think are going to be left in Europe relative to Muslims in the next five or ten years? Very few, and this is the problem. Birth rates in the UK are down to 1.4. Christians aren't having children. Muslims are outbreeding us quite literally. Uh, Christianity is no longer the major religion in the United Kingdom. Atheism has taken over, and, and soon following behind that is, is Mohammedanism. So, we are being literally replaced with a different ideology, a different culture, a different religion. Much to the delight of some very guilty-feeling people, right? Yeah. They, this is actually, they feel like they, they deserve it. And what do you think that is, that self-hate of the West? Is it really a self-hatred? Or is it a hatred of something bigger and someone bigger? Yeah. I mean, you know, personally, I think if, if you do abandon the Christian project, yeah. and I'm thinking about the project that starts right here yes. in your heart, uh, then the weight of the world and the weight, mm. the just collective weight of the sins mm. of, of everyone... <laughs> Over the course of all of history, you know, yeah. that's, that was a lot for Christ himself to take on. It's really difficult for the man in the street to take on, especially at a time when technology is growing at such a, such a, uh, a pace and growing to such a scale yeah. that people increasingly feel like maybe they have no significance, maybe they have no purpose, maybe they have no worth. Well, we, we don't have any worth. We are unworthy. That is the point. But the, the greater point is that we are saved and we are, he loves us regardless of us being unworthy. But the greater point there too is that the whole of the West was built upon a foundation. The whole of Western civilization was built upon a foundation of truth, beauty, and goodness, of faith, hope, and charity. And if we don't have them, if we don't have them, what do we stick to? What do we mean? Who are we? This inner journey of self-exploration, finding our inner selves, is actually about making gods of ourselves. And you're right, we take on all the stress and all of our anxieties, but all of the past sins of our forefathers too. The whole conversation about reparations, about 
destroying statues. It's we're, we're taking the guilt on board for other people's sins because we're not teaching about sin. We're not teaching about repentance. Therefore, we're not teaching about forgiveness. And that is the key. We talk about values. That's the key value of Christianity that the wokeness does not have. If you are born white, you have whiteness, you have white superiority, you're an oppressor, you're evil, you're racist, but you can't repent of it and you can't be forgiven for it. That's not a good ideology. Well, and it leads to a desperate desire for scapegoats and a, a, a new one every week. I mean, well, you know, one reason why I like to talk about Russia a lot is because they're kind of this weird mirror that sort of reflects some of the West, but in some ways not at all. You know, I mean, yeah. they're never going to be a model for us. There's just too, too many differences. Uh, but if you're looking around the world for a place where, uh, you know, Christian dominant, um, uh, sort of European flavored a civilization that has uh, held itself together yeah. uh, with a large number of Muslims without much conflict. I mean, the Russians have been doing this for hundreds of years. But they knew now, they I don't are. think that's going to be the model for us. Is there a model for us, for Christians and, and, and Muslims to live together in, in a functional way? I don't know about that. I don't think it's possible. I think the Islamic ideology is counter-Christian. In fact, it's one of, of, well, taking over. It's one of oppression, quite literally. The Muslim ideology teaches to go to another land, to take over that land, to implement Sharia law, to follow Sharia law above the law of the land. Whereas the Christian ideology says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to respect the law of the land that you live in, and to try and influence it. Whereas Islam doesn't have that effect. But the difference between Russia and the West is that Russia knows who it is. Russia has an identity. We hate our identity. And even if we do recognize we have one, we can't stand it. But even then, some people will say we don't have an identity. We don't have a culture. I've been arguing to protect British culture and quite a lot of the left have been saying, but we don't have a culture. What is English culture? What is British culture? They, they'll say things like, I heard this on the radio very recently, Radio 4, BBC, a main channel. There's no such thing as British culture. Go down to Cornwall, and then go to London. You'll see there's no homogeny. Now that doesn't prove the point because of course London has been infiltrated massively by the multiculturalism project, but also Having a culture doesn't mean that it's homogenous throughout the land. Of course, there'll be different... Te Texas will have different uh, um, culture to California, but there'll be a united culture under the United States, under your flag, under your constitution. And the same in Great Britain. Northern Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales, under the United Kingdom, we have a shared culture, but each independent state has a culture too. And I think the left are playing fast and loose with the idea of us not having one. It's reminiscent of Justin Trudeau talking about Canada being a sort of post-national regime or Barack Obama saying America's, you know, a nation just like any other. I mean, this is a drumbeat for these guys, yeah. right? Well, they're globalists, aren't they, essentially? They want open borders everywhere. They want to just flood the whole of the West with um, people from a different area with different cultures and different ideas. And at the same time, they want to create a new elite that they are a part of and the rest of us have no, well, will have nothing and will be happy. You mentioned the, the Russians, at least, you know, they, they have a clear idea of who they are. I think part of it, too, is, you know, they've, they've hit rock bottom. Mm. They went through communism. Yeah. Communism fell. Country fell apart. You know, I mean, you look at the statistics right now and it's easy to laugh and say, like, oh, like all these drunks and all these abortions. And, uh, you know, did they really go to church? And it's like, well, yeah. you know, maybe not. But have we hit rock bottom yet? And is it going to take us hitting rock bottom as the West in order for us to really start to piece together once again what it takes to have a firm and solid foundation that you can grow up from? Nail on the head, James. We've been in good times for too long. Good times create weak men. We know that. Now we have weak men leading our countries, whether it's the UK or the United States. And it's sad to see because they're destroying what we had and we will enter weak times. But it almost feels like we need a war. The problem is, of course, nobody wants war. That's, nobody will ask for that. But it feels like we need some, some kind of 
to build our resilience, we need something to go through together to rebind us in our nations, to believe in our nations first and foremost, but to believe in each other. And we see adversity abroad and we spend a lot of money on adversity abroad, but we haven't really had to struggle at home. Well, you know, you look back over the course of, of American history since the mid 20th century, we tried that. We tried to run that playbook, right? We had Korea, that didn't work. We had Vietnam, that definitely didn't work. Gulf War One, it almost worked too well, you know, sort of like everyone came home and it's, it's like Bush, George H.W. Bush, 90% approval rating. Yay, until, you know, the economy took a, a dive. Um, so that experiment didn't work. Uh, Afghanistan, failed experiment. Uh, Iraq war, failed experiment, at least in terms of what you're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, for me, just watching a generation's worth of, uh, of, of military guys, retired generals, you know, we need a national service movement. We need to, you know, get kids out of college and doing community yes, service yes. for a couple of years. If we don't do this, we're going to lose our cohesion as a, yeah. as a country. It's true. And, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, because for every war that creates that national cohesion like World War II did, I mean, it was a massacre. Whether you're firebombing Dresden or dropping atomic bombs, I mean, that's a lot of dead innocent people, even if, you know, they made some really bad choices about who to allow to, to, to lead them. Um, I wonder if technology has kind of taken the ability of war to unite us off the table. Yeah. We're in a war right now. You get on social media, and what does everyone do? They log on, and they sort of fight this virtual war with yeah. people that they don't know, and they're never going to see every day. That's a good point. And on the other end of that spectrum, we find people that we align with online. We yeah. find our little tribes, and we stick with our virtual tribes. And actually, that's meant that community has died away. Most people don't know their next-door neighbors anymore, whereas, you know, not too long ago, we all knew our neighbors. We all knew that if kids were playing out in the street, they'd be told off by the, pe the people in the community and then their parents would be informed. It's like it took a community to raise a child. And now that all that's been dissolved and we live in our own virtual communities and people are unhappy. They're isolated, they're lonely, and they're sad because the internet, yes, it connects us, but it also divides us massively. This is one of the most important ways that the church can spiritually buoy us up, isn't it? Well, the church was the home of diversity the true sense of diversity. You know, we had old and young, black and white, male and female, everyone from the local community. So it didn't matter who you were or where you originally came from. Your hub was your church, your parish church. The parochial system is great for that. And now even that, we shop around. We try and find the church that we prefer. We go to, to that one. So we don't necessarily know the people we're living with. And so if, if we've got an elderly neighbor that needs support, we don't know. So how are we supposed to help people? How are we supposed to help each other? And that's the big difference between the West and the East. In the East, they still take care of their generations, whether it's the young or the elderly, together as a community, if not as a family. In the West, we've kind of outsourced all of that. Even in the East, that's getting harder. Population's declining, and there just aren't enough young people to keep take care of the of the olds. Yeah. Um, I want to I want to go back to uh, to wokeness as a religion because mm. I think there's just so much tied up here. Um, from where I'm sitting, at least, I see a powerful temptation among Americans to say the solution here, whether it's uh, keeping the country together or um, making sure that there's kind of uh, one culture for the internet so that we don't just disappear into the internet as people, yeah. uh, is to establish a religion, is to create a theocracy. Say, okay, federal government says wokeness is the new religion. We're going to teach it in the schools. We're going to make sure that you say that it's the, you know, you do the right genuflections on social media. If you don't say the right things, if you don't call people by the right names, minus 100,000 social credit points. We have that. You know, yeah, this is where things are going. <laughs> but we know, don't we, from history, that taking that theocratic path 
leads to more trouble than it's worth, mm. don't we? Yeah, we do. We look at any, any country around the world that is headed up by Islam, and you know you don't have freedom of worship, Christians are not safe. You look at any country around the world that is headed up by Christianity, we know we have freedom of worship, and it doesn't matter what religion you are, you are safe to practice your religion. The United States would be better if it was a Christian, officially a Christian nation. I think that gives freedom not just to Christians, but to every other faith too. What do you make of your experience with the Anglican Church? I mean, here, you know, the, the church is this, or let's say, let's see, the state is the church. Mm. Uh, Henry VIII, you know, quick history lesson for those who are not playing along at home, um, you know, needed, needed that, that, uh, that son to be born, uh, needed the divorce to kind of move things along. Pope said no. Henry says, well, okay, I'm the Pope of, of England now. Um, did that model work? For England, and what are the lessons learned? Okay, I, I would adjust that history lesson slightly. So, <laughs> yes, the divorce and the, and the child was part of this situation, but the, the wider picture was that in England we do not like being governed, governed from countries abroad. So I would say the Reformation was the first Brexit, actually. We were saying to, to Rome, you will not govern us. The Pope does not have jurisdiction in this realm. Um, yes, he, he, he is the first among equals in terms of bishops, but that doesn't mean he can dictate what happens in our country. And that's exactly what we did with Brexit. We said to the Germans and, uh, in, in Brussels, you guys cannot make the laws that affect people in our land. We need to be able to have democracy here. We, we elect the people that create our laws. So it was, it was more of a Brexit situation with the Reformation. So the Anglican Church wasn't starting a new church. You know, for 35 years after Henry VIII left Rome, we were still Catholic in, in name, in tradition, in every single way. We just didn't respect the authority of the Pope. It was only under Elizabeth I that she was excommunicated and then we became what you could say Protestant or Anglican, Anglican but there was no, let's set up a new religion. So people still maintained their theology, still maintained their liturgy, and for the most part, things maintained as they were. So Anglicanism has become the English expression of the Catholic faith. Very different to say Lutheranism or Calvinism or any kind of Protestantism that separated from the church. Anglicanism is the church in England. And how, what's, what's the verdict, 2023? <laughs> the verdict is without authority, things crumble. And I say this as someone in the Angl Anglican tradition who loves the Anglican tradition, that liberalism has gained a foothold because not having a, a magisterium, not having a, a leader, has, has meant that there is no authority. And that should mean that church says, well, we have no authority to make changes. But actually what's happened is the church has said, well, we have no authority to prevent changes. So we've had female ordination, we've had um, no fault divorce, we've had the acceptance of contraception, and it looks like very soon we'll have same-sex blessings within the Church of England. And from there, it's just a, a tiny hop, and really, we, you can just watch people doing this in real time, just saying like, well, we really only have authority to bless changes. Well, yeah, I mean... And then it goes from, from you know, that, that sort of neutrality that isn't a stable position to something that is that, where the authority swings all the way firmly yeah, in the other direction. Absolutely. And it's very sly, it's very pharisaical the way they do these things. They never go, okay, now we're going to allow gay marriage. What they say is, well, we'll look at some prayers to bless individuals within same-sex unions, and some of them might be sexual in nature. It's, it's always an underhanded way of doing it. It's always boiling the frog, the frog in the boiling water until he doesn't notice that the temperature has risen. You know, it's, a, it's a salami approach to changing doctrine. One of the great tragedies and mistakes, I think, that came out of that whole sort of early Reformation era in, in England, uh, the, uh, the, the dissolution of the monasteries. Uh, understandable, you know, under the circumstances. Not, not that surprising that's the way it went down, but that was a huge blow 
to a certain kind of religious life yeah, yeah. that I think more and more people want right now. We, you know, people, they deal with the phones all day, they deal with these jobs, uh, they can see that the, the life is being sucked out of their communities um, and they want to withdraw. That was a time of great evil. It really yeah. was. As much as I respect Henry VIII's Catholicism, the way he treated the monasteries was just evil. It was wicked. Uh, the, the monks and the nuns over history had protected Western civilization and Western knowledge much in the way that Glenn Beck's got his museum and protecting in his vault um, knowledge and information of, of our time. That's what the nuns and, and the monks did throughout the Dark Ages, you know, ensuring that no matter what happens in the, in the world, in the church, they'd still maintain that stuff. And for the problem was that the, the monks were loyal to the Pope and not to the king. So right. he, just, he just decimated them. But it's our heritage that he destroyed. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to bang on about this a little bit because it's one of my one of my favorite hobby horses. I just think it's so important. You go back to that period of time and you look at the role that, that the monasteries played, and yeah. it wasn't just to give people who wanted to withdraw from the world a way of serving God. Yeah, um, it was also a way of enabling people who had real spiritual discipline yes. and who were praying for the salvation of the world. Yeah to put their hands on the most powerful communications technology in the world yeah, yeah. and to, to, to shape it and direct it in a way that strengthened our humanity yeah. and that strengthened our way of life and that provided some spiritual protection. Yeah. And today what you see in America, you know, yeah, there's some monasteries, not that many, um, but most people who are all excited about getting their hands on the most powerful communications technologies are not particularly religious, or if they are, you know, they're worshiping tech, they're worshiping, you know, yeah. strange things that we can talk about another day. Um, that imbalance mm. is a profound spiritual imbalance. And at a time when so many Americans are having that kind of gut check where they see institutional corruption, they see institutions falling apart, they want to withdraw from those things, but they don't want to go live, you know, the, the Ted Kaczynski style in the woods and, yeah. and mail letter bombs off. They, uh, they want some sort of, of life that, mm -hmm. makes, that makes it worth the living. Um, monasteries can provide that. But also, if you have monastics who know a thing or two about technology, yeah. they can use some of this digital technology in a way that does exactly what you're talking about, preserves knowledge, preserves wisdom, and creates a culture of discernment. Yeah. Where it's not just like, well, either I'm going to be glued to my screen 24 hours a day, yep. feeding my soul into the box, or I'm going to be, you know, throwing wooden clogs into the machine, blow it all up, send it, call in the airstrikes. Yep. Like some of these, you know, these, these, some of these Silicon Valley guys, you know, they're either worship AI or kill AI. Yeah. There's got to be something in the middle. And that thing in the middle is only, I think, is only going to come to us through spiritual discernment. And that is a practice that takes discipline. If it's divorced from our technology, it's going to become our enemy in the same way that anything that is divorced from spiritual discernment strikes us as an enemy. I love that. That's fantastic. This is the thing. Yeah, you're right. We are making progress. Things like AI are the future. We cannot avoid them. But we have to be asking the ethical and moral questions of, is this good? Not just, can we do this? And we don't seem to have that, especially in, in Silicon Valley. But you're also right in that the monks and the monasteries provided a sense of tradition. And people are, are searching for tradition now because the world is changing so fast that, that if what's good today is bad tomorrow and vice versa. The world's upside down. So people are looking to the past for the future. As, as backwards as that sounds, it's a good thing. You know, the Latin mass in Roman Catholicism is really taking off. The Book of Common Prayer in Anglicanism is really taking off. People are looking to what our fathers did, our forefathers did, that was right, that was true, that was good, and that was beautiful. And that is how we find, well, the faith.
I think that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I was talking about Bitcoin a great deal, and people were like, "What are you talking about?" Uh, now <laughs> they think, now they kind of caught up, and so now I'm talking about theology a lot, yes. and so sort of. But I think this is happening. You know, what else is going to be able to provide the ballast for people where they don't think that human beings are just sort of dust that's going to get swept away with everything else that's being digitized? Um, so let's let's go back to the concrete here. Mm. Here you are in England. You're watching all this unfold. Um, you know, I've heard the stories. I'm sure you've, you've seen some of these things firsthand. In some cities, the only folks who you can rely on to stop the transification of all the kids are the, the Muslims. Uh, and the Christians are sort of backing away, fading into the hedges. Um, obviously, you know, immigration is, uh, let's say, uncontrolled. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a disruption any way you slice it. There's only so much land to go around in Europe. I think Americans are really kind of spoiled almost with the amount of land there is yeah, out here. Yeah. Europeans don't don't have that to fall back on. Uh, what do you do? Do you stay? Do you leave? Do you move to Texas? Possibly. <laughs> I don't know. This is the problem. You're, you're right. We have an issue with land. You know, people take photographs of England and say, look at all that green space. It's like, yeah, but that's our green space. <laughs> we still need green space. We can't just build on the whole thing. Uh, but it's also resources. Our national health service, our education system cannot keep up. They're over capacity right now. They're breaking because of the open borders. We've had a centre-right government, the Conservatives, in power for over 13 years now who've been saying in every manifesto they're going to cut or control immigration. They never have. Immigration's rapidly increasing. Over a million uh, nets migration to England last year. We just we can't sustain those numbers. That's ridiculous. So the, to your question, what do you do? I'm stuck at that question right now. I'm discerning that question. Do you stay and fight? Is it a worthwhile fight? Is, is, is it a winnable fight? Or do you just form a remnant elsewhere? Do you go to somewhere like Texas where people still believe in Christ and believe in freedom and, and make that the, the last stand of Western civilization? I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Well, it's sort of typical American uh, self-obsession, um, perhaps, to some degree, but I, I think there's some truth to it, this, this idea that, yeah, Brexit was about Brexit, but it was also about Trump. And uh, you look at, at the way that Trump is once again advancing himself as the, the candidate of unfinished business, you know, of really the candidate of that populist movement that, uh, yeah, Brexit worked, but a lot of stuff didn't work. And um, there's this tug of war sort of going on for, mm. for the soul of the West. Um, Trump's laying out his agenda again, saying, bring me back and I'll get it done this time. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. I don't know. We'll see. But in the meantime, we can look at Brexit and we can say, well, how's this working? Um, that's something that, you know, it's a little bit more difficult for Americans to get their arms around. Can you help us out? Yeah, I mean, it, it worked. We got Brexit done. We have our sovereignty back. So the people making our laws are the people that we elect. It's still a bad situation. We've still got the lowest caliber politicians we've had in a, maybe a century. So they're still not, not creating the laws we want or making bad laws. But at least there are politicians that's, that's the benefit. And people will point to the economy every day and say, well, is Brexit working for the economy? The Bre- Brexit was never about the economy. We knew there might perhaps be a short-term downfall in the economy, but that's a hit we were willing to take because people idolize the GDP, but the GDP is not everything. Our national sovereign- sovereignty, our independence is far more important, actually, in, especially in the long run. This is one of the great dilemmas, I think, facing the West is, can you break that idolatry of markets? without ending up just killing <laughs> killing off markets. Yeah. Do you do you understand sort of yeah. like where's is there a middle ground there? Well, How I've do come, we find I've come it? a journey on this because I used to be a big free marketeer yeah. and, and I realized that's idolatry because the free market is 
is a tool. It's not an end game. And capitalism is the least worst option. It's not the ideal. You know, a free market is a good thing, generally speaking. But we do need regulation because we have to prevent monopolies and we have to prevent well what we're seeing over here, for example, like big money lobbyists, uh, big tech, big pharma having more power than potentially governments around the world, and that scares me. So I think yes, we do need to have a free market at the lower level for individuals and for small businesses. As as, it, as these businesses grow into becoming large corporations, there needs to be regulation to regulate the monopolies. Last month, the G20 announced a plan to impose digital currencies and digital IDs on their respective populations. Central bank digital currencies essentially allow the government to track every purchase you make. They could even allow officials to prohibit you from purchasing certain products or easily freeze or seize part or all of your money. In essence, they enable the government to take more control over your finances. Concerned Americans are diversifying their assets into physical gold with the help of Birch Gold Group. If you want a physical asset held in a tax-sheltered retirement account, you should call Birch Gold too. But learn for yourself. Text James to 989898 and they'll send you a free info kit on gold. The easiest way to become a Birch Gold customer? If you have an IRA or a 401k from a previous employer just gathering dust, Birch Gold can help you convert it into an IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text James to 989898. Claim your free info kit on gold, then call them. Because if digital currency becomes a reality, it'll be nice to have some gold to fall back on. So, you know, you're a thoughtful guy. I mean, it's my job to sort of think a lot. So I guess I'm a thoughtful guy. Uh, we can sit here and kind of lay these things out. Not rocket science. It takes work to implement them. Yeah. Why are there so few public officials capable of one articulating this stuff mm. two getting together and hammering like an agreement out and then three actually putting it into practice where do we find these people just don't think there's any desire for that i think a lot of the people in politics are attracted to politics so they're attracted to the power and the, and the atmosphere of whether it's the white house or westminster and there aren't a lot of people thinking through what the problems are and even if there are they're all rhetoric. They're all about the the attention and, and the prestige of saying the right thing and throwing a bit of red meat out there. But to, to make changes, to implement policy is hard work. It's, it's a grind. And I don't think most people are up for it. I just don't think most politicians want to do it. They, they'd usually rather just scaremonger. And it's, it's painful because there's a lot to be frightened of right now. You see what's unfolding. It is very massive. People mm. recognize that there are some really overpowering forces just kind of yeah. washing through yeah. everything. And so, you know, the, it's not the right answer to just be very casual about that or blow it off or just bury your head in your phone and wait mm. for it to go away. It's not going to go away. No. Um, when you are trying to, uh, to win, I mean, let's just say win converts, right? Um, what is personally like your approach? Do you try to, to veer somehow between scaring people and comforting them? It can be tricky, right? I try to encourage. That's my main method of winning people over to the faith. I don't try to convert people because I think only Christ converts. I try to lead people to Christ, but I don't try to do it by convincing people. I think that's a difficult task. Um, I try to live a life in Christ as best I can and set a good example. So we're called to be the salt. We're called to be a light in an ever-darkening world around us. And that's how, you know, as the world out there becomes less attractive, 
Christianity becomes more attractive. When people see Christians living in Christ, they're like, whoa, that's different. That's that's countercultural. That's what I recognize as old-fashioned or how the world used to be or how the world could be. I want a piece of that. And sometimes it, it takes personally hitting rock bottom. That's sometimes. a powerful motivator. And in you know, and in a certain sense, that is a mercy. Mm. When finally you, you know, you fall to a level where you accept yeah. how dependent you are. Right. Well, the key there is suffering. The Christian faith teaches us to find joy in our suffering, and it tells us that we're not alone in our suffering, that Jesus Christ is with us in his, uh, our suffering, and he suffered for us. Now, the world around us will say, we have to avoid suffering at all costs. This is the woke movement, to do anything to avoid suffering in your life, but it's, it's one of the only constants in life, suffering. So we need to teach resilience and teach how to, how to suffer well, as odd as that sounds, rather than to run from it. And this is why people from the younger generations these days have less resilience because they're taught that they can do whatever they like. They can change their identity. They can become a man. They can become a woman. They can become a cat, a dog, or a horse. They can do whatever needs to be done to avoid suffering. And we know that's not possible. It's not true. Certainly hard to become a man or a woman if you never hit puberty. That's a paradox that's a upon truth. paradox. Yeah. It's, it's very sad. Do you have in your mind uh, a, a clear vision of what rock bottom looks like for Europe? How bad is it going to get? I think it could be the end of Western civilization. I really do think we take Western civilization for granted and we expect it to always be around. We expect to always have the things we have from the smartphones to our automobiles. We expect to live the way we do right now. And I don't think we can take that for granted. I think if we look around the world and look throughout history, every major civilization has risen and fallen. And the West is no exception. There's nothing special about the West anymore. Since the values we talked about at the beginning of the show have been removed, we've taken out the foundation and a house cannot stand without a foundation. It will fall in on itself. And perhaps that's what the West is doing. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's on us as the Christian remnant to, to remain faithful and to rebuild what comes next. Uh, at, at this moment, as we speak, um, there's hopefully not World War III, but wars around the world mm. and you can see how they could all coalesce together oh, yeah. um <clears throat> we've got muslims we've got christians we've got jews we've got different factions in each of those three religions we've got people who are uh self-professed secularists although you know your mileage may vary right and increasingly people who oh yes i i do worship technology yes i do identify as a member of a swarm yes i am part of a collective consciousness um are you inclined to, to see this as a trajectory leading in our life toward the end times? I try not to. I think there's something narcissistic about that. I think every generation throughout human history has assumed that they are the end time for yeah. some reason or another. What we're going through now isn't entirely pleasant, but it might not be the worst that is to come. So I think we have to prepare for the end times, but not expect it. Well, and in a sense, the end times are every day. I right. mean, you know, if you're living through... Whatever it is, the the Black Plague, yeah. the fall of Constantinople, World exactly. War One, two, uh, even today, um, people die yeah. in large numbers, yeah. and for those people, it is it is the end times. It is the it is the the, the end of the road. Yeah, um, I think that's a better solution. Be prepared for our judgment day rather than the judgment day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's uh, just just to go to uh, to uh, a a. Uh, a touchstone for, for Eastern Orthodox mm. um, to think of themselves as being uh, uh, the first among sinners, mm. uh, as if you're at the front of the line yeah. on Judgment Day. Yeah. 
um, that kind of perspective, I think, you know, I think there's, there's, this can seem pretty alien to, to many Americans, you know, who are like, well, what do you mean? You know, I'm not, you know, uh, they, they don't want to think of themselves every day as being, uh, as being sinners. Mm, um, but we are, but we are. And, uh, and insofar as that's inescapable, yeah. um, it's actually good news to realize that, right? Yeah. And yeah. this is a large part of the problem, actually, in that wokeness says you don't have to take personal responsibility. Therefore, you don't have to address individual sin. Everything's an institutional, you know, institutional racism, systemic sexism. It takes all the personal, puts it under corporate. So it's the corporate that's responsible. Therefore, the individual never recognizes their own sin. The individual never repents. Therefore, the individual is never forgiven. And then we're stuck in this constant state of sin. And we, it's like the, the victimhood mentality. We can never escape it until we recognize it. So we need to be teaching about sin again. And you're right, a lot of people say, I'm not a sinner, how can you call me a sinner? It's like, well, it's not an accusation, it's an acknowledgement that we are all sinners. I am a sinner, is the message of the Christian faith. It's not me going, you, 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 it's, it's me, 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 us. And that's what we need to recognize. And we need to teach what sin is. You know, a lot of schools are encouraging, these days in education, they're encouraging sin, rather than teaching, uh, warding against it. And if we are gonna save Western civilization, uh, and a lot of people are so, sort of don't even know what that really means anymore. Uh, and there's, it's always healthy to have some kind of disagreement on these things, keeps things fresh. Yeah. Uh, but there is this confusion, and I think you know part of the problem is um, there are some issues with Western civilization. Uh, and then we need to find that middle way between unthinking praise and idolatry mm. and what we're seeing now, which is cast it all into the pit so that we can create heaven on earth. Yeah. Um, in that middle road, I think you look at the history of, of religion in the West, and what you see a lot of is uh, trying to purify the law. God's going to punish us. The way to avoid God's punishment, the way to avoid wrath is by, well, okay, you know, the, the Bible's kind of hard to, to agree on one interpretation. Mm. Uh, it's kind of hard to agree on one interpretation of, of the words of Christ. Um, you know, printing press and it leads almost immediately to just you know, a quarter of the population of Europe dying, it's just waves of religious wars. Um, and so where do you go to, uh, to avoid God's wrath? Well, you go to the law, you go to understanding the laws of physics, the mm. laws of nature. If we can just, if we just master the law, then we can make sure that we're safe. Um, I think that's been kind of a, you know, that, that has led us, I think, in many ways toward where we are now in the sense of uh, the precautionary principle, sort of eating policy, uh, Greta Thunberg running around saying, you know, you, you, need, you can't use airplanes anymore. Um, yeah. Wokies saying, you know, that you, you are spectrally attacking me with your whiteness. Uh, we need to create spiritually safe spaces. Uh, and we need to do it through this, this ever-growing list of laws. Yeah. You know, for every microaggression, there needs to be a sort of micro-law to tell each person where they stand in the hierarchy and what they owe everyone else around them. You know, I mean, I think that's the kind of thing that you really can't implement without a supercomputer, which is why they say that they're critics of technology, but they really just want their hands yeah. on the steering wheel. Um, at the same time, you don't want to have no laws. So do you see, whether it's in Brexit, whether it's in you know, attempts to kind of restore nationalism to uh, 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 sort of strengthen its reputation in Europe, do you see any trends where, uh, where we can find that kind of middle ground on law again, where we're not trying to perfect it, sure. um, but we're also not, uh, whether it's you know, sort of libertarianism that shades into anarchism, um, it's, it's breaking out of that love-hate relationship yeah. with law. So of course we can't perfect it because we have to remember that 
this is not our home. This is our home for now. So we have to have our eyes on the end goal, the, the heavenly kingdom. But whilst we are here, we should take inspiration from that kingdom. So for example, our laws in the West, at least, were founded upon the Ten Commandments. And I think a good way to look at it is through we are free until we're not. So in England, at least, for example, it used to be the case that you are free to do as you like, as long as it's not exclusively outlawed by the law. And then we look at the, the American example of positive law in that you're free to do what is prescribed in the law or the, or the constitutions. And I think we're, the West is now following that approach, which means that we are, have taken an assumption that we are given our freedoms, that, that we're given our rights by governments, when in fact we are born with our rights, they are God-ordained, and no government can give our, give our rights. Governments can attempt to take our rights away, but that's when we have war. And that's, that's why you've got your first and second commandments, which are, which are great protection. But even those commandments, people, see, people idolize the Constitution as, as, as a place where their rights and freedoms come from. It's not. First and second amendments. Amendments, sorry. Yes, what did I say? Right. Commandments. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Slight, slightly <laughs> yeah. different. Well, so, you know, England's got the common law, and uh, it's easy for Americans to say, like, well, that's why you're so screwed up is because you didn't write it down. Uh, do, you, do you think a constitution is, is necessary to preserve those rights? I don't think it is. I think if you look at other countries, what well, Russia's had written constitutions that have been torn up before, for example, having it written down doesn't mean, pe mean people are going to abide by it. We, we have a constitution in England that isn't written down, unfortunately, and for the most part, we have abided by it, but recently throughout COVID, we haven't. And we have to have people who believe in the constitution, not idolize it, but believe in the founding principles of it in order to protect it, whether it's explicit or implicit. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this can get spicy uh, here in the US, but um, for all of the, the wisdom that is in the background of, of what's referred to as the rule of law, mm -hmm. That can become an idol. That yeah. can become smothering. Yeah. And you know what you see people constantly complaining about. Oh, our, our our public officials are so terrible and throw the bums out. And it's like, well, if you know, if you don't have quality men, quality human beings, doesn't matter how good your laws are. Yeah. So it can be very spicy to say, like, well, you know, maybe we have a little too much rule of law and we need a little bit more rule of men. But when you get down to it, it's all just people, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. And it comes back to what are our politicians? They're public servants. They are there to serve us. They're not there to rule us. They're not there to govern us. They're not there, for the most part, to protect us. That is up to us. That's what community is. That's what manhood is. That's what the patriarch is. It's there to protect and provide for the community. And that's what we need to get. We need to restore the patriarchy. That's what we need to do. Let's get men being gentlemen again. Let's get men providing and protecting for women again and children, protecting the innocence of children and creating community and maintaining community. All right. So that's let's let's play with this a little bit. So restore the patriarchy, yes. uh, strong men, yes. uh, virtuous men yes. in charge of institutions like the family, uh, perhaps first and foremost. Uh, where do you, where do you get these strong men from? You look around, you don't you don't see a lot of them. There are you know lots of good people, but uh, but it sounds like you want something more than than what we've got. Well, is there is it? I mean, is it a matter of just like uh, a crash course in educating kids? What is it? Well, how did the woke do it? How did they create soft men? How did they create women that are men? Indoctrination. So we do the same, but we indoctrinate with good instead of bad. We, we put Christianity back into the American schools. We, we put Christianity back into British schools and we teach what is right, what is good and what we've always known to be so. And that's how we win it back. All right, well here, uh, two clear um, uh, strains or paths that, that people are trying to take. People who I think generally agree with you. Uh, on the one hand, it's folks who are like, you know what? 
the education system uh, it has fallen. It's over. Mm. You see the flames rising from your kid's school yeah. and you say, I'm just going to homeschool them. Yes. I'm going to create an education pod or tutoring or whatever. Mm. You know, stop the world. I want to get off. Uh, track two is I'm going to be an involved parent. I'm going to go to those PTA meetings. I'm going to fight. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to raise my voice if I have to. Yeah. Um, do, is one better than the other? Do we need both? Well, they're great, but I think we have to remember what education is, right? So I used to be in education. I used to be an assistant principal, a director of schools. I helped set up schools. I worked for the Department of Education in the UK. And throughout all of that time, parents would say, how come kids are leaving school not being able to read and write? People would say that. Parents would say that to teachers and to schools and to the government. That question is upside down. If a, school, if a child can leave school at whatever age, 16, 18, usually around 16, without being able to read, the parents have failed as much as the school. And because a child is a parent's responsibility, first and foremost, their education is a parent's responsibility. Imparting values is a parent's responsibility. But we've handed our kids off to the state and expected the state to parent for us. And then we wonder why kids come back with different values and, and poor education. It's like we need to flip that up entirely upside down. So if you can homeschool, absolutely you should. It's a wonderful thing. If you can't, Parochial schools are a good example. You know, parish schools that are linked to a church, that are linked to a community, that everyone is invested in. So we're all invested in raising good people. That's what's important. Not just people with good grades, but good people. Sure. I mean, it's you know, it's all too easy to to beat up on bad bad parents, and God knows, you know, the 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 history that can be written about the damage done by bad parenting is is a long one indeed. But isn't this you know part of the social contract that has evolved, uh, it, whether it's it's here or in the UK, where you really do have to kind of give your economic life to the state uh, in order to. Um, maintain what used to be a middle-class standard of living mm -hmm. and increasingly you know with with both uh husband and wife working yeah. um in some cases the wife working you know a, a an even worse job spiritually than yeah. her father worked yeah. you know it's very understandable you get a generation of women two generations look at their what their fathers do and they say you know what like i want a job too yeah. i want to be able to to make my own way in the world and they end up, you know, sitting in a, in a cubicle in an open floor plan office, just sort of clicking at the screen all day, getting paid less. The, 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 the dollar or the euro, whatever goes, yeah. doesn't go as far as it used to. Um, when you have to give that much of your life to uh, this sort of state planned uh, economic system, you don't have anything for your kids. Who said you have to? So you think, well, I mean, you can you can opt out, but there are real costs to this. This is right? it. We have to accept the sacrifice. We have to accept a lower standard of living. If we want to live good lives, we can't live middle class lives. And a lot of this comes down to the lie of feminism, this idea that for women to become equal in society, they have to become men and enter men's workplaces and compete with men. And then you get the feminist argument of, oh, well, there's a, pay, a gender pay gap that needs addressing. And then you look at the law and see that Men and women doing the same job are paid exactly the same amount, so there is no gender pay gap. And then they say, yes, but because we have to take time off work to have children, men are raised up in promotions during that time, and that's unfair. It's like, well, if a man is committing to working while you're not in the workplace, of course he will get the promotion over you. That's just common sense and meritocracy. What we should be saying is actually we need to value women more. We need to value mothers more. Being a mother is the greatest vocation in the world. And it shouldn't be a secondary vocation to whatever job someone wants to. That's a utilitarian approach to, to human nature. So we need to get back to men being providers and protectors and women aspiring to be mothers.
All right, so I, I, I like the robustness of the criticism here. So downward mobility is good, actually. Mm. It is a price worth paying. Yes. Pushback will be, well, okay, maybe I'm willing to you know, forsake that third car or forsake that hot tub or whatever. Yeah. But if I'm struggling down at a lower level, sure. it's not just going to be more suffering and more discipline required of me, but I'm going to be less powerful. I'm going to be less influential. My voice is going to matter less. I, I already feel like I'm politically on the outs. Am I not going to sink into oblivion if me and people like me sort of fade into the background of economic life? No, because it's all a con. This idea that men and women both need to work is a con because essentially the, tax get, the state gets double the tax and the, the GDP rises and people make more money. It's all about money. It's not about lifestyle. It's not about what's being good. What, what is good? If we live a, a, a less, a, higher, a lower standard of life, but a higher quality of life, then we are better off, and our community is better off. But that doesn't mean we have less of an influence. More people can stand or run for election. You know, you don't have to be middle class to run for election. In fact, we need more good, solid, working class people and more Christians running for election. Well, this is interesting because, you know, it, it wasn't that long ago uh, when people on the right saw themselves as the, the private sector people yeah. and looked at people on the left as the public sector, oh, unions and bureaucrats yeah. and whatever. You're painting a picture of sort of this, the sort of opposite of that, yeah, absolutely. Where, uh, where the private sector has been sort of colonized and eaten away mm. by uh, human resources departments and big pharma and all mm. the bigs, all the consolidated industries yeah. that are really, you know, state affiliated, but that there's this still sort of available this this political substratum mm. below that level yes. where people who have freed themselves from the constraints of that kind of corporate Borg world can still come in here and you know there's it sounds like you're saying there's still a lot of freedom on the table for people to come in and play real roles yeah. in kind of organizing self-determination self-governance that kind of stuff at a lower level that can be that can function well even when everything else is falling apart yeah, again we reclaim our freedom it's not given to us we take it back I think it's up to us to do this. And the working class, it's not the right grabbing the working classes. The left has given up the working class. This is why the left is obsessed with critical race theory and gender theory and queer theory, because the class argument no longer works. For example, in, in the UK, the Labour Party is, is the left-leaning party who send all their children to, to private schools that are very wealthy bankers, former you know members of the Crown, etc., etc., they can no longer argue the case for we, ha we literally have a knight as the leader of the Labour Party. They cannot argue in favour of the working class anymore, which is why they try to put people in these boxes and say, well, the black people have to vote for us, the lesbians have to vote for us, the trans people have to vote for us, because they can't represent what they were originally set up for. The Labour Party, in its very name, was about the unions and the working class, and they've been disregarded. So we have a silent majority now that is politically homeless. And that's why they've gone to the right, because the right, well, should be at least protecting social conservatism. Well, I'd go so far as to say that there's a powerful movement to eliminate the, the working class, to eliminate work, uh, or at least to transform it oh, into yeah. something that bears no resemblance to what it's been for the past, you know, 12,000 years, depending on how you're counting. Uh, I, yeah, I would say the same for the middle class as well, actually. I think the working class and the middle class is being wiped out right now by the elites. We're looking at every, everything is automatic. You know, I go to my local supermarket. I don't have to have a conversation with a, a human being. I can to pick up my, my stuff, scan it myself, pay for myself, contactless payments, no cash. You know, my local bank uh, branch has gone automatic, so I don't have to see a, an assistant or a clerk or whatever. I can do everything 
with robots and computers. And that's miserable. That's not good for humans. We need contact. We saw this throughout lockdown with the masks interrupting our interactivity with each other, but also just the fact that we were kept two meters apart or if that's if we're allowed to see other people at all. We are a social species. And the more we automate, the less happy we are. I think that's one of the greatest injustices that we've seen in our lifetime is just the way that lockdowns broke the spirit mm. of people when it came to love your neighbor. Yeah. You know, how can you love your neighbor when they're just a sort of flickering non-entity on a screen? Yeah. You can't. Uh, and okay, you know, technological progress isn't automatically a bad thing. More technology isn't automatically a bad thing. Uh, but the more, when, when you're using that technology to automate away right. the spaces in which the spirit can move through people, mm. then you are, you are waging spiritual war against your own people. Yeah, I think technology can be used in a couple of ways. It can either be used as a tool to help us within creation, or it can be used as a distraction from creation. Um, such as, you know, we can, we can see a possible future where people wear VR goggles and plug in IV in their veins and don't interact with the world at all. That was an entire distraction. But even now, the, as you mentioned, the amount of times we sit in front of our smartphone glued to it in, in another place, that's not a tool that's helping us in the world. But even when we do use technology as a tool to help us to, to, to form creation, we can go to the point that human beings are no longer needed. We're no longer necessary, we're no longer part of the equation. So we do have to be very careful with the pace of, of progress because progress is not always linear. Even just on a very practical level of competence, when that much is automated, mm. when people are that isolated from one another, uh, we forget how to do things very yeah. quickly. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not just a function of you get older and you kind of don't remember what you learned in college, although that is, I mean, I would love to see some kind of polling on that. Yeah. We think of ourselves as a highly educated populace and then, well, how much of that did you actually retain? Were you really just learning for the test so you could sort of climb the, the ladder of, of, of social credit? Uh, I think yes. But yeah, when that much is automated, people lose their competencies. And then they see themselves in relation to their technology as this thing's better than me, it's smarter than me, it's faster than me, humanity sucks. Mm -hmm. Let's just give it all to the machines. That is worry so about depressing. That? Oh my goodness. And you're right. You know, people often think, we're smarter than we've ever been, and we have this superiority complex looking at the past, but at the same time, the research suggests that we are remembering less because we offload it. We know, like, I know I can pick up my smartphone right now and pick up a whole host of facts. Therefore, subconsciously, I don't restore those. I don't retain those facts anymore. So our knowledge is getting less and less. And at the same time as this is happening, we're literally erasing knowledge. We're rewriting the language. We're rewording words and changing meanings and banning and canceling literature and, and books. So we could be entering a new dark age. Well, it's, it's, it's very easy, and I have to guard against this, to just sit around and, and identify what sucks and talk about how much it sucks. Take us out. we got a few minutes. Take us out on a hopeful note. Where do you see the green shoots? <laughs> oh, gosh. Be hopeful. Okay. I mean, we are a faith of hope. This is the thing. So as grim as the world gets around us, it doesn't matter because we are not of this world. We're in the world, but not of the world. So we can always have hope in the future, in our everlasting life. But even in this time and space, we know that civilizations have risen and fallen, and we can be a part of what is to come next. Whatever the next Christendom is, whatever the next Western civilization is, we can all be a part of it. And we can learn from the mistakes we've made now. We need a moral compass. 
We need a value set. We need to know what virtues are. We need to teach about sin and we need to teach about forgiveness. These are all things that the Christian faith gives us. So let's cling to that and get rid of this wokeness and get rid of these competing ideologies that are from the enemy of lies. And, let, and let's look at the truth and let's look at beauty and let's look at goodness. A new and doubtless very different renaissance. Calvin, thank you so much. Thank you. God bless. Well, that's literally all the time we've got, at least until next time around. So thank you uh, once more to Calvin. You can follow him on Twitter. You can check out his Substack. stack. Uh, in the meantime, this has been Zero Hour. I am James Polis. May God have mercy on us all.